Uh, my name is Trev. For those of you who don't know me, I am a pastor here at Urban Grace Church, and it's my great privilege to uh, deliver God's Word to us uh, this morning. And we are in a series called Seven. It's on the seven churches of Revelation, or really the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. I'd love for you to turn there if you have a Bible. Revelation is the last book of your Bible, and if you're brand new to Christianity or the Bible, uh, would you ra raise your hand and someone will come and bring you a Bible? Not if you're a new Christian, but if, if you don't have a Bible, would, would you raise your hand and someone would love to bring a Bible to you? Uh, we'd like you to keep that Bible if it's your only Bible, your first Bible. Uh, otherwise, turn in your app. It's pretty easy to Revelation chapter 3. And uh, we're going to close out the series today on the seventh letter to the seventh church. I'll just catch you up to speed as to what this series has been all about. It's as if Jesus Christ himself has come down and visited uh, seven different churches, and he delivered a vision to a, a man by the name of John who then wrote his vision down and sent these letters to the churches. And although they're specific to, to specific churches in specific cities, Jesus wanted everyone to hear what was happening. And so he, he, he basically says at the, at the end of each letter, to those who have ears, let them hear. Meaning he wants everyone to hear this message. And I think he didn't just mean that for like the other churches in the area, but he also meant that throughout time. And, and I heard someone in, in an interview this past couple of weeks say about these seven churches that if you took them in totality, they describe every church. There are elements of every single church in all seven of the churches, and so sometimes they're very particular to us, and, and we believe that it's very relevant. In fact, so much so that I, I want to do the series again. I'm not going to, but I want to do the series again in the future because I think these are words that are going to have great use to us in the future. Some of them are very hard words. Some of them are, are scathing letters. In fact, out of all seven letters, there's only one that has all positive, right? You ever have an email where everything's all positive? Usually it's like one negative thing. That's what a boss usually does, right? Hey, here's what you're doing well, and you know what that means. means there's going to be one thing at the bottom. Can I get you to et cetera, et cetera. And this is kind of how Jesus speaks. And there's one letter uh, to this little church in Philadelphia. It's all positive. And Jesus says, hey, hang in there. Uh, you've got a great, great opportunity. Then there's other letters where Jesus is, is like, this is what I have for you, and this is what I have against you. That's the way he says it. This is what I like about what's going on in your church. This is what I don't like about what's going on in your church. And then there's one church that he's like, forget positive. There's nothing good going on in your church. That's this letter today. So if you wanted an encouraging word from your pastor in your church, I'm afraid you'll have to go to another church this morning because it is in some ways a discouraging word. However, I have felt quite encouraged because it's a word, uh, it may seem like a discouraging word, but it's a word to help us wake up and become alive to our spiritual condition. And I think it's a good word for us, not because I feel like we need a harder word. I felt in some ways like I'm thankful that there's only seven letters because I, I couldn't handle 52 letters to 52 churches throughout the year. It'd be a little much. But I feel like this is a good letter because it describes so well the culture that we live in. Lethargic. You ever felt that? You ever felt like we're in kind of a... We're, we're, in kind of, the best word, I remember first getting a text from one of my friends. He's, he's here this morning. And I asked him how he was doing. 
And the response I got was, meh. You ever, you ever had that? I love that word. I was like, meh, me, meh. It took me a while to figure it out. And then I was like, that, that's what happens sometimes. How are you doing today? Eh. Eh. Okay. You ever had those days, those weeks, those years, those decades? We're like, nothing's happening. I, I feel kind of, I'm not, I'm not really dead. I'm not really alive. My job's okay. It pays the bills. It's not super great. My, my marriage relationship, you know what? We don't fight a lot, but there's not a lot of excitement. It's somewhere right in the middle. School is okay. I get things done. I've got decent grades, but it's not fulfilling all of the passions that I love. I think this is Jesus' word to those kind of people in that kind of city and that kind of church. And the problem is with that is it's very difficult when you're in that situation to, to notice sometimes. And that's usually what happens is we don't notice we're in this kind of lull. We don't notice that the, we're like that frog in the, in the boiling water, right? We don't really notice that the temperature is going up or down. We're just kind of totally unaware, room temperature. So I want to describe uh, this city to you because I think what's happening in the city has everything to do with what happens in the church. And I firmly believe this really still happens today. This is why I, I kind of love this, this concept that I never really heard this in any commentary. I just, I care so deeply about the ethos of our own city and studying cities. It's kind of a, a little pet hobby of mine, the study of cities. And what I've noticed is that every time there's, there's a, something that's happened in the city, it's greatly affected the church. And, and that happens to us as well. And so let me tell you a little bit about this city. Laodicea. Um, there's, there's not a lot known about it, but what we do know is, is well, let, let's tell you where it is first. So we have the seven churches in the seven different cities. And so this letter is being written in this place right here uh, by a man named John, Pastor John. He originally pastored in Ephesus. Um, and so what happens is all these letters are written in kind of this circular motion as if you were traveling to each one of these different cities. And so here's Laodicea. Right in the middle, it's in between Herapolis and Colossae, which you'll find out in a bit is really important. Uh, there's, th this city didn't have necessarily a lot going for it. It, wasn't, uh, it, was, it. it didn't have anything special to it, except it was along trade route paths, and for whatever reason, it became prominent over time. Now, the problem with Laodicea was pretty serious, and in those, th these days, we would not pay attention to that. But in those days, it was not built on a river which was really strange. Someone's like, why do you build a river or why do you build a city that's not on a river? It doesn't even make sense. And so what ended up happening is they had to figure out a way to get water to this city because now they have this city. They got to supply it with water. Uh, they're halfway in between two places that have great water. I, I actually can't remember which one. I think Herapolis had the hot springs. Uh, so they had this great hot springs, kind of like Banff hot springs, you know. It smells a little bit like sulfur, right? It's great in the wintertime. It's, it's not super great to drink unless you're like seven and this is your first time in the hot springs and you think that's cool. Um, but they had to pipe water in from Herapolis or they had to pipe it in from Colossae. Colossae had cold springs. Clear, crystal clear, cold water. That's why those two cities were built. But here's the problem is that they had to develop this enormous aqueduct system. Um, it's going to come up here in a second. Uh, if it doesn't, Matt, 
go ahead and change it. Um, but they had to develop this aqueduct system that would pipe water either in from Herapolis or Colossae. They got to remember a little bit about the climate here. It's not like our climate. Um, it's, it's really hot climate. So the hot springs would come in and they would cool off, but they, they wouldn't cool off a lot because the, the temperature was so hot. Uh, you know, if you take hot spring water like in Banff and you run it down the hill or put it in, it doesn't take long before it gets cooled off, but in a kind of a warmer climate area, it doesn't cool off enough. If you take cold water and you pipe through the aqueduct system, what happens? It gets warm. And so by the time it reaches Laodicea, it's almost undrinkable. It's, it's tepid, it's mineral, tepid mineral water. Like, like, I remember for a special um, little anniversary celebration, we decided to go to uh, Watrous, Saskatchewan. Anyone been to Watrous, Saskatchewan? I'm from Saskatchewan, so I can make fun of it. Plus, my parents are here, so I can make fun of it, right? I'm an insider. Now, the thing about Watrous is they say that the water has healing qualities there. So we thought, hey, there's this great mineral spring, and the color is literally like a dark brown, like someone shouldn't have been in the pool, okay? That's what the water looks like. I'm not making this stuff up. And, but it, you float in it, and it smells like mineral. And you know what? It, cl- it, it cleans everything out of you, and it makes you actually feel good, but it feels super weird. It's slimy, and you float weird. Like, you can't stay underneath the water. You, like, you try to go down, you can't go down. It's weird, right? It's, just, it's, it's like, and the, you don't have to have signs that say, please don't drink the water because you're like, there's no problem with that. Um, I'm never going to drink this water. And, and as, I, as I thought about Laodicea, I can kind of see the same sort of thing. In fact, what you can kind of see here is that the mineral deposits are so much, you see the aqueduct system was actually right here, but over time, as the water would go through this system, the mineral deposits would just harden up over time. And they found clay pots or in the aqueduct system that is like they got a hole like this after having built an aqueduct system like this. Eventually, someone said, well, the last earthquake that happened in Laodicea, they're like, well, this was a dumb idea in the first place, so let's not rebuild, but we're not there yet in the story. What you have to also know is that this is a very proud city. And so in 26 BCE, um, they put a bid in to be one of the main centers to build a really enormous temple. Um, to Tiberius, and they lose out. It's kind of like an Olympic bid today, right? You have Olympic bids, you put everything together, you say, this is what we have to offer. They lost to one of the other seven churches, so I'm sure there's a little church competition even going on there over time. But they, they lose out on the bid to Tiberius because they're told you don't have enough resources. Now, this is important because this always has a chip on Laodicea's shoulder. The reason why is in 60 um, A.C.E., I think they call it now, or after, after the death of Christ, there's a large earthquake. And when earthquakes happen and the, the Roman government found out, they would often help out the various cities like we would get helped out by the province of Alberta in, in times of a flood or in times of disaster. And, and Laodiceans were so proud, they refused the help of the Roman government. In other words, they said, you don't think we have enough resources, huh? Well, we will show you. 
we'll rebuild our city by ourselves with our own resources. And actually it created this kind of entrepreneurial spirit within the city. It was quite a wealthy city. And they they started to do some some unique things. It became one of the banking centers of of Asia Minor. Um, I think because of the water, but apparently the sheep got into the water and they enjoyed it because they were known, this particular area was known for developing a wool, a textile that was like dark raven black. So, right, sheep's wool is normally white on a normal day, so apparently black was the new white. So they... uh, they have this raven black wool, beautiful dark wool that you just can't find it. Then they don't have to dye it. It's right in the sheep, right? Probably where you get this idea of the black sheep, somewhere in there. It also is a place that's filled full of kind of these medical uh, compounds. And so this medicine is, is a big deal there. And people would come from, I don't know whether it was like mineral spas or those kinds of things, but apparently they, they figured out some sort of compound one day to help people's eyesight, fix people's eyesight. Now this is all fascinating to probably me, but this will come very useful in the rest of what I want to say this morning. Because the message that Jesus has for this church has everything to do with that. So let's look at what happens? Well, we have, to, we have to notice, first of all, in the text that Jesus speaks a very clear word to this particular text. When in, in chapter 3, verse uh, 14 there, it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, or the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And every time that Jesus wrote a letter to one of these churches, he, it's kind of, this is his business card, and it was slightly different in every context, because he had slightly different things that he wanted to say. But here's what he says. Tell them that who is writing this is the, the, the amen. Tell them it's the faithful and true witness. Tell them it's the beginning of God's creation. Three very important things we all need to know about Jesus. You see that the amen is capitalized as in the amen. That word amen or amen, we say it at the end of prayers. If you're new to Christianity and you're like, why do Christians say amen? Or why don't they move after a prayer until somebody says amen? You ever been in a prayer and it's awkward because you don't say amen, right? It's like, does that close this prayer down? or how? Do... Actually, that word comes from the word verify or confirm. That's why at the end of a service, I literally say to you and all of God's people say, amen. And then I point to you, amen. Or somebody say, amen. That's not a cultural thing. That's, that's a word that we use to say, I verify that I believe that's true. Right? I confirm that in you. So when I say, do you believe this? Confirm it by saying, amen. This is what Jesus says. I confirm myself. I'm the amen. I'm the capital A, amen. It's a remarkable statement about Jesus. And it tells us a lot. You could have a whole sermon on this, but some people would say, oh, but Jesus was a great prophet. He was a great preacher. He was a great teacher. He was a great moralist. But here's what Jesus says about himself. I am the authority. And that's who's bringing this message. What else does he say? He's the faithful and true witness. All throughout these letters, it is clearly proven that the churches in the letters are not very faithful, regularly. Here's the strange thing is, is that's what a church is supposed to do. When Jesus 
died, then he rose again, and he had a couple of words for the people on earth, his disciples, those who would take the message. He said, wait for my spirit and you will receive my spirit so that you may be witnesses. What's a witness do? They tell of what they've experienced and seen themselves. Here's what Jesus says. You're terrible at this, and I'm the true witness. Thirdly, he says, I'm the beginning of God's creation. Again, we don't want to dive too deeply into this theologically, but think about that for a second. This, this, this is Jesus stating, I wasn't just there when everything started. I wasn't a created being. I was there participating, helping create. It's an enormous statement that Jesus would make. It's not a prophet. You know, many religions would claim prophets are people that come after. This is Jesus saying, I didn't come after anyone. No one's authority. My own. I'm the amen. I'm the real witness. When you all fail, I will continue to witness. And lastly, I was there when it began. I was there when it began. It gives you a sense of authority. Like, that's, sometimes I, I use that, I, honestly, as a wild card in our church, right? It was like, well, what, what would give you the authority, Trev, to say these cer- certain things? And some of you would want to use that wild card as well. well you know, I was, I was here in the beginning, right? So I kind of have a say in how this should go down. And that's what Jesus says. And then what, is, what does he say? He says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Does that sound familiar language? If you understand what's going on in Laodicea, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you were lukewarm or tepid, neither cold nor hot, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's literally the reaction. If you take mineral water that's lukewarm and you try and drink it, you know what happens? You gag. You dry heave. Or you wet heave. I don't know what, which is right. Right? You just like... Last night I had some tea before I went to bed. I left it too long, and it was like kind of warm and kind of not warm. It just makes it so undrinkable, doesn't it? Like coffee that's either iced or hot is okay. As soon as you get right in the middle, it's just like, no, this is no good. It just almost changes the taste. It just repels you. It just, you, bleh, you That's what you want to do with it. This is what Jesus is saying to this church. I see this church. I'm the amen. I'm the one who can say these things. I'm the faithful and true witness. I've done this. And you haven't. I was there in the beginning. And and here's what I don't like about you. You're just like that disgusting water that you pipe in to your city. He's like, you shouldn't be. You should be like the water in Colossae or the water in Heropolis. And in some ways, it's almost like you shouldn't be hot or cold. And some will hear this and be like, oh, so Jesus is happy with me if I'm hot or cold. So if I hate Jesus, he's happier with me than if I'm just lukewarm. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to say. Here's what he's trying to say. I see your church, and it makes me sick. It makes me sick. This is why this is so hard. Can you imagine? Have guest speaker show up. It's Jesus himself, the one who started the church, right? 2,000 years ago. Not the head director of our national church planning network, but like the global director of the whole world. 
He shows up to our church and we're like, tell us, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And he says, you guys make me sick. I see what's happening in your church and it sickens me. It's, it's like that tepid, lukewarm mineral water that just is, doesn't do anybody any good. And so we have to ask, what is it about this church that's making Jesus so sick? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because it's interesting what makes him sick. It's not that he sees people and they're not in, involved. Um, it's that he sees people and they're just completely indifferent. If they texted him, their response when Jesus asked them how they're doing is meh. Meh. I don't know. I guess it's okay. It's like, Jesus, it's, when you look at the good news of the gospel, and this is where I'll just take some time to explain this. When you understand, fully understand who Jesus is, that he is not just a prophet who came to give you good moral imperatives by which to live, that he died on a Roman cross. He was crucified on that cross because there was a penalty that needed to be paid and he, out of love, chose, willingly chose to pay it on your behalf to give you a relationship with the God and creator of the universe. This is God not staying in his great throne room. I love the song that we sang. It said, you came to us. And when you, we understand that, we can't possibly be indifferent to it. It's impossible. It seems like we're, we're, in, we're indifferent to all the wrong things these days. We're passionate about things like football and sports and Facebook and all kinds of things. And indifferent about the best news we could ever possibly hear. It's, it's an incredible phenomenon. I think it describes so well us and our culture at times. And so what, is, what does Jesus say? Well, he said, for you say, I am rich. That's verse 17. I have prospered and I need nothing. See, he knows the situation. He knows that, that Laodicea is a banking center. People came to Laodicea to cash checks. Somebody found a, a Jewish collection of gold that was a, apparently a temple tax. Like, they shut it down and they said, no, 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 tax money stays here. Laodicea, <laughs> don't let this go out the door. But they were aware of, of, like, they had gold run through their fingers. It was a financial center. It was a place where people came to prosper. Does that sound like this city in any way, shape, or form? Of course it does. Very few of us are here because the climate is awesome. We are here because this is a place where people can prosper. I mean, it's like 80%. When I meet new people, I'm like, why'd you move to the city? Very few people say, you know what? I went through the list of great cities in this earth, and I went, Calgary is probably the best place I can possibly be. No, most people say, I'm here for 10 years, I'll make my money, and then I'll go back to a real city. Jesus says, you say you're rich. You say you prosper. You say the city is wealthy. What else does he say? It makes me sick. Because of what he will say later. He says, actually, you're poor. 
Actually, you're poor. I'll get into that in the last half. He says, what else? I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor. Not like pitiable as in awe, poor thing, but like, oh, you're a real piece of work. That kind of pity. Right? There's pity and it's like, oh, I wish I could do something for you. And then there's pity like, oh, I hope you get what's coming to you. This is that kind of pity. Like, you're kind of a mess. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked. You think you got this great, awesome black wool to cover you? You think you got all this wealth? You think you're a great solution, your medical solution to your sight, this medical salve that you have, or salve, however you say that? You, you think you can help people? Open. Here's what you really are. You're poor. You can't see, and you're naked. We don't really get that naked thing either. Meaning, it's not just like embarrassing, but there's shame all throughout the Bible story, the way the Bible talks about nakedness. It's regularly an act of shame. That's why sometimes when, when people, I mean, there's a little bit of shame in that, obviously seeing your parents naked, but there's a story in the Bible. Let me finish before you judge me. Story in the Bible where someone some dude sees his father naked and it's not like, oh, dad, like, seriously. It's like, shame. It's like, bring shame. Like, you shouldn't see that. It's not, it's not for us. This is what Jesus is saying. You're naked. You should be ashamed. You're poor. You think you're wealthy. You're poor. You think you can see everything. You think you've got the corner on the way church should be, but you're blind. It's a harsh statement. It's the kind of statement that I can't even say about our church. Only Jesus could. Because I couldn't even know you well enough to know that. I couldn't even know us well enough to know that. Although I do know this, that if you're a person at all, and if you live in a comfortable area like me, and we do, where we don't have to worry sometimes about whether or not someone will bust in and bust us down for preaching the gospel, or I don't often have to worry about food on my table. I don't lay it up at night wondering if I can put a meal on the table. If you're in that kind of situation, you've probably hit some level of comfort and and wealth the rest of the world just is not used to. This is never more obvious than this past week when I had, a, I had a Skype call with a church planter in Turkey who had actually spent three years training in Canada. And he said his time in Canada was really great. He loved it. Safest he's ever felt. He said it was a strange way of lulling you to sleep. You're not, you're not aware of anything, he said. I, I had forgotten what it was like to sleep at night without having to wonder if, if my bed was positioned properly according to the door in case someone attacked me. He said, I've forgotten that pe- there's people in the world that don't have to worry about that. Do you worry about that? Because you're a Christian, do you position the bed in your bedroom so that you have good access to the door so that if someone comes in, you can defend yourself? You probably don't. That's a real action for Christians around the world. And this is what Jesus is saying. 
you don't realize the situation you're in. You don't realize how poor you really are. You don't realize how blind you really are. And that's what this church planner said. I didn't realize how much danger I was actually in. And I didn't realize how this safety, although I wanted it and loved it, he said, the best three years of my life. He said, you know, in his best English accent, Tim Hortons, I thought it was great. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're Canadian, actually. Got some in you. We'll work with that. We said what was difficult was it made me so complacent about my faith. And when I came back, I realized how helpful this can be. Friends, this is what makes us sick. This is what makes Jesus sick. Is that spiritually, in reality, you and I are actually quite poor. Spiritually, in reality, we are blind. Spiritually, we are naked. But that's not the problem. The problem is we don't realize it. That's the real problem. And the way we've even prayed this morning was, help us to realize what is our actual spiritual condition. Where are we actually at? Because here's the great thing is Jesus doesn't say, you know, you've got this major problem, so deal with it. Actually, he turns it around. He says, here's your spiritual condition as I see it. And go back to his authority of what he's already said and established who he is. Not only can he see it well, he knows it well, and he understands it, and he's the best example of it. He says, you need help to see this. You need help to see this. You know, as we think about this whole issue of, of cold and, and hot, I, I just thought of that whole temperature thing, and I, I just said, that's so true about our, the way temperature works is kind of the way spiritual life often works for us. Like, if you're a really cold-blooded person and you're always cold, what are you always looking to do? Always looking to get warm, right? Putting on slippers, turning the heat up, in the case of our family, turn the heat way up to 30 degrees because that apparently is, gets the heat faster through the vents. Right? You know what I'm saying here? You know what I just did there? I'll pay for that later. Or if you're hot-blooded and you're always hot and you hang around people. I went on a trip with a guy who's like always hot. And he's like, ah, turn it down. He's like, turn the vent. He's like, air conditioning, it's minus 10 out. I'm like, what's wrong with you? He's like, I lived in the mountains for a while. Cut me some slack. I'm like, but I'm kind of, I'm trying to warm up. He's trying to cool down. But the thing is, when you're hot or you're cold, you know it. Because you're trying to get the other direction. You're hot, you're trying to cool down. You're cold, you're trying to warm up. But when you are lukewarm and room temperature, what are you? You don't notice. Nobody's like, my goodness, I am I'm room temperature today. You're not aware of it. You're not aware of it. And Jesus said, that's what makes me sick. That you're not aware of how much you need me to see. You need me to cover your nakedness. You need me to get your wealth. And so let's finish by saying what makes us well. What makes us well? We've got to close this thing out quickly here. What makes us well? Well, you're not going to like what makes us well. And this is why we shy away from it. And sometimes we're so tempted to, to, to stay in this mediocre 
complacent way. But what does Jesus use to change our temperature? Testing. Anyone say amen to that? No, because you don't like it. Nobody likes testing. Not one person, well, maybe one person, has come up to me and said, you know, I'd love a deeper spiritual life, and I'd like to be, have Jesus take me through the ringer on it. I'd like that to be my path. You know, Jesus, give me the hardest possible path because I need to be tested. I need you to grill me. I need you to challenge me. I need you to put me through difficult situations so that I can come out on top. No, you never say that. We don't say that because I think we live in a lukewarm culture. What do we say? Protect me from danger. Make me wealthy. Take away all the problems in my life. We don't naturally gravitate toward testing. I certainly don't. And I bet you don't either. But here's what Jesus actually said. This, this concept, and this would make so much sense for a financial center that actually has gold passed through their hands, and they probably have to do this. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. What's he talking about there? He's saying, your faith is so precious to me that it needs refining. It needs testing. This is how you actually purify gold. I googled how to purify gold. Now there's some sort of acid process, so it didn't work as an illustration. But back in the day, you purify gold by what? Heating it up. You'd heat it up, and then you'd scrape all the junk on the top. And then you'd heat it up again, and you'd scrape off the junk off the top again. Then you'd heat up again. You did this usually seven times. You'd heat it up and scrape all the junk off the top. And this is what Jesus says. Faith that matters, faith that doesn't make me sick, is faith that is genuine. But in order for faith to be genuine, I have to test it. I have to bring circumstances into your life that challenge you. Because the reality is, there are some of us who when we face challenges, we find out like that how faithful we really are to Jesus, how much we love Jesus. Some of us have these situations that go through our life and they confuse us. Have you ever like set out to love Jesus with all your heart, mind, and soul? Or you're like, I'm going to really do this thing and then it gets hard. Like, why is this so hard? If I really want this, why is this so hard? Shouldn't it be easy? Jesus says, no. If it is easy, you become room temperature and you don't get aware of your spiritual condition. And that makes me sick. I don't, I don't want to be sick. I want this, I want you vibrating. <laughs> I want this to, to knock your socks off. I want your faith to be rock solid so that no matter what comes in your life, you're not doubting me. You're not struggling to understand. And yet we don't see the testing in our lives like this at all. Usually, usually, we see tests, struggles, trials, pain in our life as God's way of trying to get us out of his kingdom. That's usually how we view it. We're like, God, I would follow you, God, if you just didn't grill me so much. You got anyone who's ever accomplished anything, any Olympic athlete, they will say, you'll never know what really you can do until you're tested to the nth degree. athletically, you cannot find out how far you'll go until you've gone as far as you can go. 
Let us see this, church. Urban Grace, let's take this application and hear this and not be surprised when tests come our way because those tests aren't there to defeat us or take us away or help us to be one of the worst cities in the seven churches. It's to help purify our faith. It's exactly what Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he will admit they grieve you and they frustrate you so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, yes, temporarily you see it this way, but don't see it this way. You can actually rejoice in trials because you know that Jesus is actively at work in your life, challenging and growing your faith. Yes, confirmed. But this is going to be hard. So we need each other. We need to hear this again and again. You'll need to hear this from the pulpit again. Remember, the tests you are facing are not there so that Jesus can defeat you. The tests are there to help your faith. Let's go. You're going to need that. That's why we encourage city groups. Because that's what happens in relationship. You help bolster the faith of those who are discouraged and frustrated. By all the tests that are going on in their life. All the problems. And, and my goodness, we have all kinds of problems in our church. No offense. Because we're broken people. But we just sometimes don't realize it. What else does Jesus use? I would say Jesus uses shame. Some of you don't really think about this, but he uses shame to point us back to him. There's a great story about shame if you go back into the, the history of, of God's story and you look at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, you see God makes a perfect world with perfect people in it. And the first thing they do is believe a lie from Satan that, they can, that, that knowledge will bring hope to them, that no, true knowledge, right? Truth will set you free, right? That was something that someone said to him. They're like, hey, if I can just get knowledge of everything that's going on, um, then it will release us. But here's what happened. When, when God gave people knowledge of who they were, what's the first thing that they experienced? Right there in verse 7. This is Adam and Eve. Then the eyes of both were opened. The first thing they thought of is, I'm naked. I'm naked. And what did they do? They did what we all do when we feel shame. They sew fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths. Okay, so you don't do that, but metaphorically. Metaphorically, you sure do. We all do. What I'm trying to show is that there's a pattern here is that when we understand who we really are, we feel shame. And when we feel shame, our first reaction is to what? cover ourselves up. Think, think about your life. Some of us just feel shame over the way we look. So what do we cover ourselves up with? Makeup, clothes, friends. We bring in things into our lives to hide who we really are. And I want to share with you that this is probably my deepest struggle in my life. 
There are days when I just feel complete shame over who I am. I hate admitting that because I'm ashamed of what you'll think. And I have this temptation all the time to cover myself up with something, to make myself into someone that's distant from who I really feel I am. And I feel deep shame. Some of it is not because I've done anything wrong. Right? Like the way I look, I did not choose this. I said, my buddy Matt, I was like, I can't believe you have to look at this face every day. Like, I would not choose this. And I didn't. Why should I feel shame over something that I didn't get a choice in? I don't know. But I do know that I feel shame. What is it for you? What are you shamed of? Maybe, it's, maybe it is sin. Maybe there's stuff that's gone on in your life, in your past, and you don't actually think Jesus can forgive you for it. And so you literally try to cover that with work, relationships, money. Pick, pick something. I guarantee it will feel strangely like taking loincloths out of fig leaves and covering yourself up. And this is what Jesus says is, don't cover yourself up with material things. Don't use that black wool you think is so awesome. Black is not the new white. White is the new white. The white of my righteousness. See, this is the opportunity to believe in the gospel. As Jesus says, you feel insufficient. You feel like you're not quite who you should be. You feel like you have a terrible past. He says, so don't use anything that you make up to cover yourself. He says, clothe yourself with my white robe of righteousness. Because Jesus is the only one who has ever been perfectly obedient. And he says, use that to cover your shame. I, he says, will cover your shame. White garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And what else does he say? And we leave with this. He says, blindness. It makes me sick that you are blind and you can't see. But he says, here's the solution. You need me to see. And some of us are, are so desperately trying to see the truth of God and we're trying to do it through ways that he doesn't want us to do or are useless. He doesn't say, if you just put on your thinking caps and intellectualize this, you can see. He doesn't say, if you just got busy and worked harder and volunteered in your church more, you would see. He doesn't say, if you read your Bible every day and go into... Christian community and serve in the church lots, you can see, what does he say? You need my salve. This can only come through grace. Only by grace can we see. You may be familiar with the song. I'm not sure. It's called Amazing Grace. Anyone familiar with the song Amazing Grace? You may have sung it so many times that you've forgotten what it says. Here's what it says. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound 
and had saved a wretch, pitiful, pitiful wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I wonder if the writer of that hymn was not reading Revelation chapter 3 when he wrote that. It said, it was amazing grace that allowed me to see. It was not my work. It was not my circumstances. It was not any of those things. It was the pure, raw offer of grace from Jesus Christ himself that made me see. And some of you are blind. Statistics will tell us that some of us are blind. Statistics will tell us that some of us don't think we're blind and we're blind. Some of us think we're going to get saved if we just keep coming to church more. Some of us think somehow we're going to have all the time in the world. We're going to figure it out at some point. But we need to realize, we need to realize that you can only see in the spiritual realm if Jesus gives you the salve. And that that can only happen through grace. And he says there's one action you can do. Ask. Ask. Ask to see. Ask for your eyes to be opened. And that's why at the very end of the text, he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will eat with them. Most intimate possible activity you can do in that culture. Jesus, I'm asking, will you respond to me? I'm offering you grace. Will you respond to my grace? And so, band, would you come up? And as we close, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate what we call the family meal. And here's what the family meal consists of. The cup and the bread. Both of these things are in, in, incredibly symbolic to this whole process. But here's what they symbolize. They symbolize a God of the universe who's actually come and knocked on the door of all of our hearts and said, I want to eat with you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to see. I want you to be rich. I want you to experience sight. He said, so I need to do my work. And what we have is, is a cup and bread. The cup symbolizes the bloodshed, that this was a real sacrifice that Jesus sacrificed. But also that the bread symbolizes that he was here in the flesh. And that he comes to you. He comes to you. So let's celebrate this together as we sing.